Welcome to Accelerate Your Business Growth, where we're exploring all sorts of business topics. Experts from around the world join me, your host, Diane Helbig, for a conversation where they share their expertise with all of you. Take what you need, when you need it. Featured on Inc.com, Forbes, and MSNBC's Your Business, this podcast is recognized as one of the best podcasts for small business, sales, leadership, social media, and more. When it comes to business, Accelerate Your Business Growth has got it covered. And now on with the show. My guest today is Lewis Schiff. Lewis is an experienced entrepreneur who hosts the annual Moonshots and Moneymakers, the Oxford Innovation Conference for American Entrepreneurs. He's the chairman of the board of Experts for Birthing of Giants Fellowship Program and founded Inc. Magazine's Business Owners Council. In the past 20 years, Lewis built and sold two media businesses to publicly traded companies, iVillage and TheStreet.com, and has authored several books on success. Thanks so much for joining me today, Lewis. Thank you, Diane. I'm really happy to be here. I am thrilled to have you here. Um, I, I, I want to dive like right in, I'm into this because I'm wondering about innovators and in your estimation, what you think is stopping most innovators from succeeding? What's going on there? So if you, by, by most innovators, we will sort of take this archetypal, archetypical uh, individual who might very well be sitting at a Starbucks right now, um, banging out a PowerPoint deck for some sort of pitch contest or some sort of uh, you know, sh- uh, road show, trying to raise their first quarter million dollars, their first million. If we're talking about sort of startup people, um, the challenge that they're having is um, we call them fail factors, that they don't, they have too many fail factors working against them, which is why when they think about raising their first million dollars, they end up giving so much of their company away. And the kind of the course is set right there, meaning even if that company goes on to become a hundred million dollar company, they've probably had to raise money so often that that individual may own 5% of the company or, you know, some small amount. And so the, the, the process that we've taught our children or taught, you know, college students or what have you is very entrepreneur unfriendly because they haven't addressed the fail factors. So the fail factors are, do you have a, a reputation or a brand in your space? A lot of people are starting from totally from scratch. Do you have a proven leadership or management team that can help you execute? A lot of people are assembling their teams when they get their first million dollars. And how deep is your knowledge of your market or your industry? And a lot of folks are, again, jumping in from scratch. So, you know, this vision of Travis Kalanick not being able to get a taxi one day, so he starts Uber, is sort of like the big story that you're discovering something that's in plain sight, but no one but you saw it. Um, When the truth is, wealth in the innovation economy is being created by people who are already in that category, they're in that space, probably working for a bigger company in that category, or maybe they started a services-based company in that category. They have a reputation, they have a management team. And so when they go to execute, they've really diminished the fail factors. And so, you know, that's where the best, most productive innovation from the point of view of wealth creation is taking place. It's not taking place in that, that young person with an idea kind of category. That is so interesting. I never really thought about 
<clears throat> those rounds of um, capital that 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 innovators go out for, and that it continues to diminish the degree of ownership that they have. It's it's pretty big. So you know, think about this. There's so much money out there. So let's just take that portion of money that's really for high risk things. You know, venture capital or something like that, angel money. And there's so much money, and you have to think about it like almost like a grain silo, you know, there's so much grain in the silo. And if they don't sell it and move it out, the silo gets filled and eventually starts overflowing and, and, the, and, and literally the grain starts to go bad. So in a professional investing context, a venture capital uh, fund is given, let's just say $100 million to deploy. Well, they only have a certain amount of time to deploy it. So let's just say the typical amount of time is seven years. The clock starts ticking right away. So just like that grain silo, if they don't get it out soon, that goes bad because now they only have six years. Now they only have five years and four years before they have to return it to the um, to the original investor, what they call the limited partner. And so the clock is ticking. So they've got to move that money. And so they look for investments and um, they have taught the world that we should start these startups from scratch so that they can deploy their, their money. They can get it out of their grain silo and into the businesses at terms that are highly beneficial to the venture capital fund. And that's the better story for them. So in my world uh, of experienced entrepreneurs, often in the services side of the business who find, we call them money makers, who find a way to pivot into a moonshot. In other words, apply technology to kind of a more proven services business. Um, When they go to the markets for money, they actually are probably self-funding the more risky part, which is the beginning part, called a, a, a minimally viable product or an alpha, whatever you want to call it. And they're only going to the capital markets when they're ready to show something that's probably got some proven revenue, some proven um, you know, momentum, and they're taking that money on much, much better terms. So the VCs don't even really like those opportunities. They kind of prefer the startup kid who's willing to give away 51 or 60% of their company from day one, whereas the moneymaker pivoting to moonshots probably giving away 10 or 20% for the same cycle. That's so interesting. But but do they still, do, do the <clears throat> moneymaker to moonshot, do, do they still get funded? I mean, you know, are, are there venture capitalists out there who will uh, invest in them? Absolutely. I mean, they're, they're highly desirable. But, you know, it's interesting that you say that because Yes, venture capital funds will step up. You know who really steps up for that crowd are what are called family offices, which are these you know, very, very, very high net worth individuals who end up having so much money that they actually put a little firm together, you know, one or two or five people to manage their money. And it's called a family office. And they say, get my money out there, get my money working, find me some investments. And um, the answer is venture capital funds do love money makers that pivot to Moonshot, but um, in a kind of a symbiotic relationship, the typical moneymaker kind of prefers the family office money because it's probably from somebody who actually has made the money. You know, keep in mind that the venture capital fund is an organization that has raised money from limited partners. So think of a teacher's um, retirement fund, you know, an endowment that has to that has to grow to a certain amount so that when those teachers retire, the money's there. That's where the money's coming from. They're giving it to a professional investor. This is an employee who works for that fund whose job it is to deploy it. Now think about the family office where the wealthy individual has hired somebody to get their money out there and deploy it. 
it's a very different kind of relationship. I, I don't mean to sound anti-VC, yeah. although I, I probably do. I just mean that the alignment, there's always been a problem with alignment between the providers of money and the providers of innovation. The, the challenge is that, um, you know, as the moneymaker to moonshot uh, community starts to bubble up, and there's some really interesting reasons why that's happening. Um, they're also more able to look for better money and better, what I mean is more friendly to the entrepreneur money. I would say I'm not anti-VC. I am anti-unfriendly money to, to entrepreneurs. And that is a common trait amongst the VC community. They ask for too much. Look, they've got it, right? They're going to write a check for a lot of money. What are they supposed to do? Give them, hand the money over to you and then you turn out to be totally incompetent and they have no recourse. You know, they need to have all those tentacles into you that they can control you um, just for kind of their own fiduciary responsibility. But it ends up being often being very un-entrepreneur friendly. I see. I get it. I, I totally get it. And I appreciate that um, clarification there because um, it, it just helps uh, clarify what is going on there. Um, you know, there's a limited amount of equity available. It starts with 100%. Yeah. They give, and then the, the founders give away X percent to their investors and then, and then another amount and another amount. But think about three outcomes. Outcome one in a startup is it does badly. Okay, well, then you're going to fire the founder and, and, and see what, what you have left. Maybe you, maybe you replace the founder. Maybe you shut it down. Uh, maybe it goes incredibly well. If it goes incredibly well and you think you have the wrong founder, um, and that may sound counterintuitive, but it could be going really, really well, but you say, hey, this man or woman is not the right person to take it to IPO. And so, you know, you want to get rid of that person, but even more to the point is you want their equity. If they're still holding onto 40% of the equity and this has become a valuable business, you're like, I would love to get my hands on that equity. Let's get this person out of there. Now, the third scenario, which is probably the most common is where the company doesn't do really well or really badly. It just does okay. And that's the one where it's death by a thousand cuts for the entrepreneur, because if it's doing okay, then it's not hitting its mark in three years or five years as they hoped it would, it might take 10 years or 15 years. And if it's bleeding money, then that entrepreneur is being, you know, is giving away their equity. So they have so little. So almost in any scenario, it really is entrepreneur versus money. And, but, but you know, the, the, the way you make that work better for you, if you're the entrepreneur, is you kind of follow this moneymaker path, which is you build a services-based business first before you deploy it as a, as a moonshot. Okay, <clears throat> excuse me. So let's talk some about that, about growing a business without outside money. So creating a service, I explain more about sure. how that works. So this is, some of this is so simple, but it's sort of not the way we think about business. Um, the easiest way to build a business that makes money, i.e. a moneymaker, is to, is to start a services business. And I say that meaning, you know, you don't have to build a factory. You don't need a million dollars to build a factory. You know how it is. You, you get a client who's willing to pay you $50,000 for a project. You take in the first, let's say, $10,000 of starting money. You hire two people to help you do it. You do this over and over again. You know, five years later, you've got yourself a 25-person company doing $5 million a year. You know your industry pretty well. You're in pretty deep with the people who you, whose problems you're solving. And that's really what you've done. You've started a small services company that solves a problem probably for a larger company, meaning you're in the B2B space. So my advice to everyone is go out there and start a small services business 
that solves a problem for a larger business or a larger industry. And there's, <coughs> excuse me, there's three ways that small services businesses solve problems for larger industries. The first is they take on headcount that the larger industry doesn't want to take on. So they, they, they solve problems with labor. Um, and it's cheaper, right? It's cheaper for a small company to hire an individual than it is for a large company because large companies have bigger fixed overhead and more benefits and things like that. So larger companies are often looking for smaller companies to take on labor that they don't want to take on. The second thing they're looking for those smaller companies to do is take on technology risk. It's a big deal to bring new technology into a big company. There's a lot of risk associated with it. Cyber risk, risk that the company, that the underlying technology won't uh, grow fast enough. So, hey, better to get, make a small services company take on that risk. Let them come up with a new technology, maybe build it themselves, maybe find it. It's their risk, not the bigger industry's mm -hmm. risk. And then the third is financing. And this is sort of the dirty little secret of business in America is that large companies use small companies as if they're their banks. Because think about it, if I've got a big project on a large company and I give it to you and you're a small company, and I'm paying you maybe every 30 days, more like every 45 days, right? Every 60 days, I'm kind of a slow right. there. But you're having to pay all your people every two weeks. So that float is not insignificant, right? You're paying every two weeks, you're using credit cards, you're using, you're hustling and jiving, and I'm paying you every 60 days. You have become my bank. So labor, you're taking on my overhead, you're taking on my technology risk, and you're financing my business. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun, but the point is, that's how businesses get started in America. They are small services companies that solve the problems of larger industries by addressing those three areas. And the good news is that if you do that for a while, you really learn your industry and there lies the opportunity to discover the moonshot. Um, I had no idea this was going on. <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny world. It is a funny world. Uh, you know, oh my gosh. So I think you, you touched on this before, but I'm curious about how this innovation ecosystem has changed in the past 25 years and what sort of changes it's going through now. Well, let's see. Uh, first of all, a lot of the big stuff's been done, meaning um, the venture capital money, we'll take, we'll, we'll take Uber as an example. Like it was a gigantic undertaking to rethink the whole taxi industry and it took so much money. Now innovation's happening a little bit smaller. So, you know, um, we'll take Zillow, right? Zillow rethinks and reimagines real uh, residential real estate in America, a gigantic undertaking. Now it's like smaller stuff. It's going to be financing mobile homes or financing condominiums in densely packed, you know, um, urban neighborhoods, things that sort of fall into a different category. And the opportunity isn't quite the gajillion dollar sort of, you know, residential real estate in America it becomes a smaller one. So if it's a smaller opportunity, um, you still have a lot of money on the sidelines that is desperate to get deployed. And they're looking at smaller opportunities. And in a way, that's why you're seeing valuations increase. They're throwing a lot of money at things and they're looking for things that are going to need a lot of money because that's what they have. And they're raising the valuations because that makes their portfolio look a little better. Um, but also because, as I said, the big stuff's been done. There's already an Amazon that'll sell you everything. Now there's going to be some smaller e-commerce company that sells you like, you know, custom pet food or something. And it's just, it's just kind of an inflation in all those companies. And um, 
It's not that venture capital or Silicon Valley is exactly breaking down. It's just that increasingly we're in these environments where technology is a heck of a lot cheaper to deploy, uh, really to construct more than deploy. Meaning we live in a low code, no code environment. You know, we can, you and I can have an idea maybe using some new software platforms have developed the minimally viable product for it with, I don't know, $10,000 of our money and maybe um, two months of our time. And that wasn't the way it used to be. It used to be a million dollars of someone's money and, and a year's worth of time. Um, and mm-hmm. so like the ability to come up with a product that may or may not find its footing in the marketplace is getting easier or cheaper. We really don't need venture capital as much for those earlier stages. A lot of people think we do because the venture capital community has been super successful in convincing us that the very first thing we do with our business is raise money, but we don't. You and I can hustle and come up with 25 grand between us. And if we do that, we'll find out if the product's viable and then we can raise money in slightly better terms. The, the reason why the moneymaker to Moonshot Pivot is working so well these days is because they can do everything you and I just talked about, you know, come up with an idea, start something with those things they have going for them. They've got um, deep knowledge of their marketplace. They've got a leadership or a management team to execute and they've got a reputation or a brand. But the fourth thing they have is capital, meaning I can introduce you to a bunch of business owners in the Moonshots and Moneymakers community who have built, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, in some cases, billions of dollars of value. And they kind of funded all the risky stuff with their own profits from their from their moneymaker. So they didn't even need outside money. But when it came time to get outside money, man, they were they 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 had so many offers and at really good terms, which is really the secret. Okay. So smaller deals. Uh smaller return but that feels like um they can get involved in more opportunities too yeah and the smaller return point i mean i guess it is a smaller return but what we're seeing are the multiples go skyrocket i mean the multiples so in the old days a publicly traded company uh would have a multiple an average would be let's say 15 multiple on their earnings meaning um if you bought a stock right now and you said what's the price to earnings ratio let's just say it's 20 you're buying 20 years into the future profits. If you look at things like Tesla and Amazon, I mean, the numbers are in the hundreds. It's kind of, you're literally buying the profits of Tesla hundreds of years from now, in a technical sense. The inflation in private deals is similar. It's now gotten to the point where we used to say a, 10, a 10x multiple on earnings was a good number, meaning if, you're, if you had a $10 million company, you had a million dollars of earnings or profit, Somebody wants to buy that company, they would pay you 10 times the million, $10 million, 10 times earnings. Now people are saying 10 times revenue, meaning that's original $10 million is now worth $100 million in the marketplace. It's not 10 times earnings, it's 10 times revenue. That is inflation. Um, and however, if you start that services business that I described to you earlier, you're not gonna get an offer of 10 times revenue. You will get an offer of 10 times earnings. If you can demonstrate how you pivoted that moneymaker from a services-based business to a technology-driven business, now you're courting 10 times revenue offers. And so it's definitely worth the effort. And so, you know, in Moonshots and Moneymakers, this conference, we talk about how you do this. How do you take your corporate catering business, okay, where you did $5 million of business in your, in your city, 
to corporate or weddings and you have a commercial kitchen and you've got health regulations and you've got a, a great, a great chef and you've got vans to get stuff around. You turn that thing into a ghost kitchen where all of a sudden you've laid on top of it, Postmates and Grubhub and Seamless and Uber Eats. And all of a sudden to the outside world, that corporate catering kitchen now appears as if it's got a Mexican restaurant, an Italian restaurant, a Chinese restaurant, a burger joint, all in the same space, all connected to Postmates, et cetera. That same $5 million of revenue is worth 10 times revenue because you've found a way to add technology to it in a way that has a huge scaling profile. That makes sense? Totally. Thank you so much for that example. That makes total sense. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change Podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts. Though I do have to tell you, so I I need you to straighten me out here. I'm feeling like this this sounds a lot like the dot-com boom and bust. Uh, we have a lot of inflation in valuation and we all call it frothy. And, uh, you know, this will be date marked this podcast and someone could hear me say that this is a super frothy market, but we all say the same things in frothy markets, which is, um, maybe it is and maybe it isn't. In other words, if you say it's frothy and then it goes on for 10 more years, were you right or wrong? Uh If it busts tomorrow, you were right. And if it goes on for 10 more years, you weren't. So I'm not, I'm definitely not smart enough to say whether tomorrow or next year is the, is the straw that breaks the camel's back on this frothiness. I can tell you that there is a ton of money in these grain silos. It's just there. It has to get moved. And if it doesn't get moved, I'm not kidding. The venture capital funds have to return it to those teacher pensions. If they took in $100 million, they have seven years to give them back $100 million plus the return that was projected. If seven years goes by, whether they've got that return or not, they pretty much have to return the money to the teacher's pension fund. And, you know, they might ask for an extra year or two if things are going great. But if the money's been sitting in their grain silo in their bank account, it's got to go back. So the real thing to look at is, you know, the money that's sitting there, right? Is it frothy? 
Uh, obviously, bad things can happen in the world, but you even saw valuations not only staying steady, but in a lot of cases going up during the COVID pandemic, where capitalism was really under a lot of pressure, um, and yet it went up. Uh, so anyway, smart economists can think about this, you know, in ways that I probably can't. But I, I respect the question that you said, you know, is this a bubble or not? And, and I think it's definitely frothy and therefore it could be a bubble. Thank you for that. It's, it's just fascinating to me because I hear that, you know, that valuations are, you know, sort of out of control. And I think, okay, I, I feel like we've been in this movie before. Yeah. Um, I do have a question about college in our economy. Can you talk some about like what the economic importance of college in our economy is right now? Wow, uh, it's a great question. Um, can I editorialize? In other words- Yes, you, you sure can. Um, okay. You know, something weird happened along the way where we said, I'm gonna send my kid to college. And by the way, I have a 17 year old son, okay? I'm literally going college tours like in three weeks. Um, I have a 17 year old son. So we, we say, um, I'm gonna spend something like a quarter million dollars on his education. What's the return on my investment? What's my ROI on that quarter million? In other words, for some weird reason, and I do think it's kind of weird, I've said I'm investing in this child's uh, employability and marketability uh, as a result of college because there was a time when we said, hey, why don't we send our children to college to become more worldly, to read the great books, to understand how art you know, has, has evolved through history, to learn how to speak in front of a class. Yes, to make friends that could become business associates for life. But in other words, we weren't necessarily saying, what's my return on my investment for 250K? Um, colleges have had an inflation problem, right? They've been raising their tuition way faster than inflation. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. They can't justify it. They just, they're just all doing it. Um, but if you have decided that you're sending your kid to college in order to get a return on your investment, I think that's kind of weird because four-year colleges are totally not set up for that. Um, you know, the, the alignment is off. It's just like the venture capital model. You know, the school makes money when they sell you a four-year education. Now they're being held to account a little bit, like, okay, how well do the people who graduate from our college with a bachelor's degree, how well do they get on with their jobs? But the four-year curriculum that they've built is really designed around um, what the, the, the Department of Education, what the federal government has said qualifies for a federal loan, right? So you're a student, you're gonna borrow $100,000. The school you go to must qualify for a federal loan in order for you to, to get that $100,000. And so the school says to the, to the federal guidelines, to the Department of Education, what are the guidelines? And the, the Department of Education says um, 200 class hours. I'm making up all the numbers. 200 class hours a, a semester. And the school says, great, we'll put on 200 class hours. And then that student will get 100,000. They're going to give it to us. Well, think about it. I mean, the school is incentivized for the, um, to encourage the Department of Education to, to make the hours more because they sell the class time. You know, they make a profit on every class hour. So they've encouraged these um, regulations to require even more class time, which means the loans got bigger, which means the schools make more money. But we've never asked the question, geez, what would it take for me to put this young person through a program where they're actually employable at the end of it? It might take half the time and therefore half the money, but colleges wouldn't like that. So. You know, as I sat with my own 17-year-old son and, and also his college counselor, and I said, 
if my son wants to go to school to become more worldly, as long as he's good at it and passionate about it, I will pay for it. And I will not expect him to be employable. I will expect him to be more worldly at the end of it. If my son wants to get an education that's focused on a job, I'll pay for that too. If it's not a four-year institution, I'm okay with that vocational or whatever. So there's just something gotten kind of screwed up in how we educate young people. And uh, it has to do with hours. It does have to do with regulations, being connected to loans. You know what I mean? It's a cockamamie, yeah. cockamamie yeah. thing. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, I struggle with the same thing. I have a 22-year-old and a 25-year-old. And so <clears throat> they're after college. And you look, you know, neither of them are pursuing their degree. Mm -hmm. You mean so, pursuing jobs in what they got their degree in? Pardon me? You mean pursuing jobs in what they got yes. their degree in? Yeah. Yes. Even though there are plenty of jobs. <laughs> so, it, you know, it's not as if they pursued a, a field that, isn't hiring the fields are hiring um so i i have to look at it and say okay but they did learn things while they were there that they may not even realize they learned or needed until later in their life um but i agree with you i you know it's so, like i struggle with um i don't think everyone should be pushed to go to a four-year college first of all there's plenty of jobs that we need filled that don't require a four-year college. Mm -hmm. And not everyone is cut out to, to go to school for four more years to learn something they're never gonna do, you know? It, well, it, Diane, it, I mean, you, you, know, you and I are the problem really, right? I mean, it's yeah. the parents that said, you know, my notion of being a successful parent is that yeah. my child exits at age 21 with a bachelor's degree from a legitimate school. Like we, right. we put that to the table. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you know, you're absolutely right. I will say in my house, more my husband than me, I did not necessarily, and, and I have a college degree, but back then it was very different. Yeah. You know, it was that piece of paper that really opened up the door. Didn't even necessarily matter yeah. what it was in. It's just not the same anymore, but I agree with you. It, it, it's this concept that we have that that's going to make all the difference. And I see so many people who, are innovative and do create services and systems and products that never went to college. Well, I happen to have not graduated. I did briefly attend college. I became like a student uh, activist and was asked to leave the school, but- um, <laughs> Good for you. And my father said that the only time I spent time in the library was when I took it over with the grocery <laughs> But um, yeah, so there's a, you know, just like I, that, that vision of a grain silo filled with money, there is a grain, grain silo filled with jobs that require technical skills, totally unmet, totally unmet, desperate employers for people who have technical skills. And um, that, that is just a true thing. So if we said, you know, you and I are parents, we said, well, let's find a way to make sure our kids have a decent shot at a six-figure job, you know, $100,000 job. Right. Totally possible with a technical education. Yeah. Like, now, that's the moment of truth for you and me and for um, our kids is, is that what we envision for them? That they can make right. $100,000 and maybe five years from now make $150,000, but they're going to be using their hands, using their body, getting out there, you know, working under the sun. Like, is that what we had in mind? Right. Right. You're right. That's a very good point. 
Oh my God. So that's <laughs> <laughs> so such a challenge being a parent. Problems, problems, problems. I know, right. Let's talk solutions, solutions, solutions. So um, how do you think the next crop of billionaires is going to be created? Weird question. Yeah, I think it's going to be money makers that pivot to moonshots, meaning it's going to be an individual or a small group of people who start a services based company. They don't take outside money. They solve a problem for larger industry by solving a labor problem, a technology problem, a finance problem. And then maybe five years into it, maybe 10 years into it, they look for that way that they, you know, they've talked to a dozen of their clients. Their clients all have the same problem. And if somebody would solve it, there's a bigger scalable, let's say technology-driven opportunity. And that's gonna turn that moneymaker into a moonshot and that's the next billionaire. So that's, that's if I were, talk about our children, right? If I were, well, I've tried this with my child. You know, I said, go to the Air Force because they have a great technical education and you'll probably be, you know, you probably won't be in harm's way unless you're a pilot. Uh, go to the Air Force, get an incredible technical education, meet incredible technology-oriented people who will eventually scatter out of the Air Force and go to the Four Winds, and that's your network. And yeah, get a four-year education at any point along the way if that interests you. But once you have technical skills, go out and build a services business, solve some problems. By the way, when I talk about small companies solving problems for large industries, you know what the largest industry in America is. It's the federal government. So... Mm-hmm. You really want to solve a problem, find problems that the government has. They are such, they are such a good customer. They are so small business friendly um, that if you were to figure out a small way to solve a problem for, for the federal government, the Department of Defense happens to be the biggest spender of all. Um, you could, you know, you're think about what you'll be doing. You'll be take something, and you can have we can have ethical conversations about this, but you know, you learn how to get involved in things that have to do with drones. And then you figure out how those drones can be pivoted to the private sector because drones are becoming a huge part of private sector stuff, uh, agriculture and logistics, you know, you name it. And um, it's an education that you got from the federal government, maybe in the military, you got a client called the federal government, and then you pivoted to the private sector and you're a billionaire. That's fascinating. I love that idea. I keep thinking of my son as we're having this conversation because he's, he's, um, creative and he's always looking for something that he can dig into. Um, and so as you were talking, I just kept thinking, you know, he, he needs to listen to this episode. <laughs> well, the, the, the billionaires that Birthing of Giants has created, which we have in our fellowship program, followed that path. Okay. Well, you, so first of all, thank you so much for joining me and explaining these things. It has been really enlightening Uh, for me. So I'm sure it has for the listeners. And will you explain what the fellowship is and how that works, please? Sure. So um, there's a certain kind of a business owner, right? If we think about entrepreneurs, we, or what depends on what word we use, entrepreneur or business owner. But if you think business owner, you might think about a person who owns a store in your, in your community. If you think entrepreneur, you might think of a sort of a startup kid raising their first million dollars. And I say kid, I, I don't mean to be derogatory. I'm just trying to create a mental image. Um, but there's actually this interesting in between part where wealth is created in America. And by the way, not everyone has to desire to create wealth, but if you wanted to track where wealth is created, the next question I would ask you is how much wealth? And if you said, gee, I'd love to have a hundred million dollars one day, I'd say, then let's follow the paths I've been talking about today. If you said, I want to be the next Jeff Bezos, I would just 
scratch my head a bit more. I don't know how that happens. That's that's Bezos is a super smart guy. He he did an incredible thing. I just don't know how you replicate it. But you want to be a hundred million dollar person, maybe a billion dollar person. Um, you know, you're going to follow some of these paths I've described. And so, birthing of giants fellowship program looks for those people before they become those people. So the typical person is going to have a business between five million and two hundred fifty million dollars in revenue. They will almost always be a small company solving a problem for a larger industry. They'll frequently be services businesses. They'll frequently own 100% of the business. There's almost never any professional money in their business, no venture capital, et cetera. And, you know, let's say they're 40 years old, maybe between 30 and late and mid fifties. Um, and they started the business at their proverbial kitchen, you know, table solving some problem. And, um, and then that's when I meet them. They're like, they're, they're, we call them business brilliant, which is the name of a book I wrote, right? They're, they were technically brilliant at something. They were good at something. Then they said, oh, let me get 10 people together and I'm gonna start a business around that thing that I'm good at. We call that being business brilliant. But they're not necessarily the last stage, which we call leadership brilliant, which is to say, how do I build up a scaled up complex organization that could run without me? Because whenever you talk about, making a hundred million dollars or a billion dollars, you have to sell a company that can run without you because no one's gonna hand you a hundred million dollar check and say, hey, I'll see you on Monday, Charlie. Because they know that hundred million dollar check is gonna change your life irrevocably and your, your brain is in a different place. So you know, you, they only wanna buy companies that run without you. And so that process from going from business brilliant, that's who we look for for the fellowship program, people who are business brilliant and then we move them up to leadership brilliant, a, a scaled up complex business that can run without them. That's where the real value is unlocked. Wow. It sounds so interesting and exciting that you're, you know, to be doing on a regular basis. You know, congratulations. It's super fun. And I work How's with that? the students are amazing and they are, um, there's a lot of great things that come out of it. I mean, the, the mission of the Birthing of Giants Fellowship Program is to increase capitalism, and in particular, entrepreneurial capitalism, which we think of as the purest and the most fun. But we know that when capitalism thrives, poverty is diminished, because we know that, you know, entrepreneurial capitalism businesses spread their economic activity in every direction. And therefore, poverty goes down in some of the hardest to reach parts of the world. And we know that when poverty rises, I'm sorry, when capitalism rises, poverty is diminished. When poverty is diminished, lifespans, lifespans increase, access to healthcare and education increases, violence, particularly against women and children, decreases. And so the mission of Birthing of Giants is to help better people, help people be better capitalists, entrepreneurial capitalists, so that poverty will be diminished. And the interesting thing, sad, very sad, but interesting thing is that the pandemic really put a damper on capitalism worldwide. You know, things couldn't move around the world the way they yeah. used to. And you saw capitalism diminish. Yeah. You saw poverty rise. You saw violence against women and children rise. You saw financial yeah. instability in households rise and all sorts of bad things happened. So I would never want to prove my point, but right. that's what we're trying to do. Wow. Good for you. And how can people find you and, and find out about the fellowship and anything else you think they should know? 
Right. So Birthing a Giants Fellowship Program is for that specific person, the owner of a business between $5 million and $250 million in revenue. The Moonshots and Moneymakers Program, which we run at Oxford University, it's called the Oxford Innovation Conference for American Entrepreneurs, has a wider aperture. It's for anyone who's a, a VP of technology or influences technology in their company, is a CEO. Um, obviously, entrepreneurs, business owners are welcome. And so for five days, we spend, it, I mean, Diane, I, I would love you to join us. It's a spectacular place, Oxford. You, you feel the 1,000 years worth of thought that took, has taken place there. You feel it when you walk the courtyards. And so you're in this special place. You're thinking about the business you've built, and you're thinking about innovation, and you're thinking, how does innovation enter into my business in a way that unlocks it to turn it into a moonshot? And that's what we talk about for five straight days with speakers and, you know, roadmaps, and uh, we see what the Oxford Innovation Community has been working on. I mean, two things that came out of the Oxford Innovation Community in the last couple of years. The first is they decoded COVID using quantum computing in four months, what they said prior to quantum computing would have taken five years. Like that really happened at that place. And we, you know, we wow. meet people. The second is just about three weeks ago, um, a, a laboratory created an energy source for five seconds that was hotter than the sun. While I don't really know exactly what that means, they say that that's the pathway to sort of limitless energy, solving all of our energy problems. And it happened a month ago in, in Oxford. So you, you, know, you wanna be around people who are thinking like that, but you might say, well, what do I need with you know, quantum computing? And what do I need with an energy source hotter than the sun? I can also tell you the story of what happened in our program where a guy talked about a robot he was building that was destined for Mars and somebody in the room who ran a janitorial services company, right? 300 janitors made a joke. He says, yeah, but can it do corners? Can the robot do corners? And everyone laughed. And the end result was that he, in, he implemented ro robotics into his janitorial services business, which increased the value of his business dramatically, you know? And so, you know, the job of anyone in this room at Oxford, uh, at Moonshots and Moneymakers at Oxford is to say, okay, I'm hearing about these big ideas. I've got a job to do in my company and I want my company to be more technology driven, more innovation driven. How do I take that big idea that just got shared on stage and how do I, you know, interpret it into my business? And that when you hear the words success stories from a program like Moonshots and Moneymakers, it's the people who, who made that leap. Wow. I can like feel the what that energy must be like in that room. So fun. It is so fun. Oh. People going are wild. I mean, I, I don't want to say too much about them, but, you know, um, Central Intelligence Agency, um, you know, like really people with incredibly interesting backgrounds show up at this thing because they want to know how this is all happening. Right. Exactly. Wow. Well, like I said, thank you so, so much for sharing all this information with uh, my listeners, it, it is really, it's incredible work you're doing. I appreciate the education on, you know, how to really drive innovation and, and create innovation in, in a way that makes more sense. So um, thanks, Lewis, really terrific. And listeners, thank you. You're probably gonna have to listen to this one a couple of times. Uh, <laughs> it's well worth it. Yeah, I just uh, encourage your your listeners to check out uh, Birthing a Giants Fellowship Program if they're if they're that business owner profile, and if they're just really focused on how to build business in general, they want to come to Oxford to Moonshots and Moneymakers. 
Um, both can be found at birthingofgiants.com. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Discover more episodes of this podcast and explore others at evergreenpodcast.com. As always, continue to prosper and be curious. And if you're looking to get your sales strategy headed in the right direction, pick up a copy of Succeed Without Selling on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Until we meet again on another episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, goodbye and good day. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls-Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.